Uh, it's a powerful text. I love the text. It's a great exhortation, right? It's a great exhortation for each of us as we begin the new church year in the fall. Let me read it to you. Colossians 3, beginning verse 1 through verse 4. If, big if, big if, maybe the most important if in the Bible, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now, I'll stop right there. I know you, all of you here, right? You're diligent to do this, to set your mind on the things of God. That's who you are. That's how you live. Every day you get up, right? You, you haven't set your, your, your focus on the things of the world, right? No. Because you've been raised up with Christ. You know what really matters, right? You do. This is what Paul's talking about. Set your mind on the things above. Have you done it? Not on the things that are on the earth. Verse 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Made me think of, as I, I started to study the text, it made me think of how biblical Christianity differs from most religions in the world. And even pseudo-religion. Or pardon me, pseudo-Christianity in the world. Man-made religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore God owes me. I obey, therefore God must be good to me. I obey, God is indebted to me. This is Sort of. They don't say it like this. They would never say it like this, but this is the underlying assumption. I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. God's in my, in my debt. Um, they don't actually say these words, but this is what you discern from the teaching. So how does biblical Christianity differ from that? How does it differ? What is the operating principle of the Gospel? It's not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. It's, I am accepted by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am compelled to obey. Right? It's a compelling. It's, it's, it's out of love. Right? I love this God who saved me. Yes, I am a sinner. I need the grace of God. I need a Savior. And He's come for me. And He saved me in the most remarkable way. Some of you will know the name Tim Keller. He's a famous preacher in the U.S. Uh, he tells the story about a young woman in his church who really understood the implications of the biblical gospel as opposed to a works-based system, uh, which is most of what the world does and much of pseudo-Christianity, it's a work-based system. Listen to how this young woman says it. She says, if I'm saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by the sheer grace and mercy of God, then there is nothing God cannot ask of me. 
You know, there's a lot of Christians who really aren't comfortable with that kind of talk. Right? That God is my sovereign Lord. He can ask anything of me. Anything of me. He reigns. He rules. You know, I hate this little bitty God that's preached in most places these days. You run into your average Christian and their view of God is like He's just a big guy. He's kind of a big guy. You know, with superpowers. He's a big guy with superpowers. I just, I hate, I really abominate this low view of God that permeates much of the modern church. Keller's young friend is right. Men love to put God in their debt, but you can't put God in your debt. God owes you nothing. God owes you nothing. The only thing we could ever say that God owes you would flow out of His holy character. So what would that be? What would God owe you? Justice. Death. The wages of sin. God owes you. Only thing God you only thing you could say that God owes you is justice. Do you want justice from God? No. <laughs> you don't want justice from God. We all know where we would end up if we get justice from God. We must have grace. We must have mercy. So you can't put God in your debt. We are saved. We're Protestants. Okay? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's why we exist. It's what we preach. It's what we teach. It's how we live. Right? It's all grace. God is not in my debt because I obey Him or I go to church or I give money. God is not ever in your debt. You are always in His debt. Always. The air you breathe is His. The food you eat is His. The energy that that causes your body to function is from Him. What What does the writer of Hebrews say? That He is upholding His created order. And He upholds you. He upholds you, beloved. And me as well. We are infinitely in God's debt. And therefore, Luke 9.23 is reasonable. Let me me share it with you. Luke 9.23. You'll recognize it when you hear it. Jesus says that we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Him. You know, there's a lot of important words in that text, but the one that jumped off, at me, jumped off the page at me this week was daily. Are you picking it up daily? Or is this just a Sunday inconvenience for you? Daily. I'm dying to myself. Daily. I'm doing what Paul says in Colossians 3. I'm seeking the things of God. I'm setting my mind on the things above. Daily. Beloved, those of you who've been Christians very long, you know that it's a daily proposition. If you leave off, if you leave off looking at God, Karen and I were talking about it today at lunch, you know what will happen? If you leave off looking at God, if you leave off being in His Word, if you leave off being under the preached Word, you will wander off. The world will pound you with its false message. It will pound you into submission lest you look at the living God and be in awe. If you're not in awe, you haven't seen Him. You don't know Him. If you're not trembling before this awesome God. I know this is not popular in these last days, 
You need to tremble before God. You need to understand how great your God is. You need to understand it. Every man that caught a glimpse of God, I know I say this to you a lot, just read your Bible. Every man that got a vision of God could not get on his face fast enough. And these were holy men. These were prophets and apostles. They couldn't get low enough fast enough. And you have a low view of God? If you in fact do, beloved, I'm calling you out of that, okay? You know, we've got to worship the God who is. Not the God that's in your head. <laughs> you know, if you have a non-biblical God in your head, you've got a huge problem. You need to worship the God who is. He is the God of the Bible. Listen to Tim Keller. While the religious person is forced into obedience, motivated by fear of rejection, a Christian, I love this, rushes into obedience motivated by a desire to please and resemble the One who gave His life for us. Right? We rush in. So does, is that a, a, an apt description of you? I'm rushing into obedience. I rush into it. I'm looking for it. Every day I'm looking for obedience. I'm looking for obedience. You know why that's important? I tell you this a lot too. John 14, 21. What do you get in obedience? What do you get? You get disclosure. God says, I, I disclose myself to my people in obedience. I love that promise. So here's the deal. We desire, seek, love, worship, trust, and find our deepest pleasure in Jesus. That's why we we're not religious. The religionists, the legalist, the Pharisee obeys to put God in his debt. That's, that's a lie from Satan. It's a lie from hell. We don't do that. Out of pleasure and love and desire, we obey our Creator. God's radical grace, listen to this. And this is where Paul's going, okay? And this is where I'm going. God's radical grace always elicits a radical response. If there's not a radical response to the message of God in the Bible, you've not understood it. You've not understood it. And can we say, can we all agree that what Jesus Christ did would be the ultimate definition of radical? God in the flesh on the tree, in the grave. God. If that's not radical, if that's not the epitome of, of what radical is, and that kind of love should and biblically does elicit a radical response. Keller's friend intuitively deduced 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. I'll just share it with you. You know this passage. You're gonna when 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 you uh, when you hear it, you're gonna yeah, it's gonna it's you're gonna know it. Do you not know, Paul says, that you are not your own? You don't belong to you anymore. If you're in Christ, you don't belong to you anymore. You don't call the shots anymore. Christ does. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Is what Jesus said to those who were following him. 
He goes on, for you have been what? Bought. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your life. And I'll just stop and ask you right now, is that who you are? Is that who you are in Christ? Do you know you're not your own? Do you know you don't belong to yourself? You know, it's true. Even if you don't know Him, even if you don't love Him, you are His intellectual property, right? You understand, right? He wrote the software that runs you, right? You get it. You get it. He gave you your eyes, your ears, your nose, your legs, your lungs, your brain. He, everything you have, your soul, everything you have, He gave to you. You are His intellectual property. It doesn't matter if you love Him or worship Him or follow Him or obey Him or not. You are His in that sense. He has every right to do whatever He pleases with you. Again, He is not in your debt I dare say that some of you might not be living the way you're living if you really understood what this young woman in Tim Keller's church understood. God has every right to ask you everything, everything from you. It's all His anyway. <laughs> right? It's not, you don't own anything. It's not yours. It's all His. It's all His, beloved. So this young woman is right. If we're saved by sheer grace, and we are, there's nothing that God cannot ask of us. And there's nothing God can ask of us that we are not happily willing to give. Whatever He asks, I will give. And I have lost nothing. If I give everything, I lose nothing. Why? Because I get more of God. You know, the Christian never... the Christian. You know, the Christian never loses. Only the unbeliever who holds everything tight loses everything. The believer gets everything. It's always a win-win. We get God and every other good thing in the cosmos. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It's what Paul is calling us to in our text this evening. You guys know Jesus never called anybody to be a church member. I can't tell you how many people I counsel with. Well, I'm a church member. I was baptized when I was 10. I'm good. Really? I don't know if you guys follow U.S. Uh, news very much, but there's a famous preacher in the States, Joshua Harris, wrote a best-selling book, uh, pastored a megachurch for, I think, a decade or more, he just denounced his Christianity. Now, this is shocking to some of you. It's not shocking to me. I'm an old man. I've seen this many times. I've seen it many, many times. How does a man do that? Karen and I were talking about it at lunch again. There's no real fear of God. There was never any real fear of God in his professions of faith. He was a sound theologian. I've read some of his stuff. He was bright. He was good. He was unconverted. He has left the faith. He, he, used the, he, he said it himself. He says, I've fallen away. What did we talk about last week? Anybody remember from the book of Jude? We are the 
called, we are the beloved. Does anybody remember the last one? We are the kept. Who said that? You get a cookie. We are the kept. We are the kept. The kept don't fall away. The kept don't fall away. Right? The kept do Colossians 3, 1 through 4. We do that. We seek the things that are above and we set our mind on Jesus Christ. We are the kept. And somewhere along the way, Joshua Harris stopped doing Colossians 3, 1 and 2. There was never any real fear of God in his life. Jesus doesn't call us to be church members. Let me quote C.S. Lewis. I'll get into the text. Lewis says, Christ says, give me all. Now, some of you don't like that, right? You don't, you don't like that. You'll give him a little bit of Sunday, maybe, you know? I, I'll give him a little bit of my, I'll give him a little corner of my life, this much. Lewis says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your, natu your natural self. I came to kill it. Half measures are no good. And here's the deal. If you're walking with Jesus very long, you understand there's no, there's no negotiation with Christ on this. You don't get to negotiate terms of coming. You either come, you're either all in or you're not in. This is how it is with God. You're either all in or you're not in. It's His way or no way. Jesus says, follow me. That's what He means. He doesn't mean sit in a church and never change for 30 years. He means for you to follow Him out in the world. And we know what we're supposed to do. We're to be His witnesses and to bring men and women to the saving knowledge of Jesus. So a radical, radical grace will elicit a radical response from the true believer. The only reasonable response to God's radical love and radical grace is a radical life of radical faith. How about that? The R word. You don't really hear the R word much anymore. When you, when you talk like that, some of you, I'm just hazarding a guess, although we have a small crowd, I'm just guessing some of you hear loss. When I'm talking about giving everything, when I talk about giving everything to Christ, some of you instinctively hear loss. Can I say it's gain? <laughs> you know, if you get 70 or 80 years, that's great. But 70 or 80 years compared to eternity, it's less than nothing. So, what are you investing in? Are you seeking the things above? As Paul exhorts us tonight, do you hear loss or do you hear what God means for you to hear, which is freedom? You don't have to live like the rest of the world. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to be afraid. Right? Your God is God. One more statement, then I'll get into the text. Because I couldn't help but think of, of Peter, right? Why does Peter get out of the boat? Well, it's a religious obligation. It was his religious obligation to get out of the boat. Is that how we understand what happened there? <laughs> Why does Peter get out of the boat? He wants to. He wants to get out of the boat. This is the way Christians are, right? 
I don't obey to put God in my debt. In my debt, I obey because I want to obey. And I want to push the envelope because I want to experience Christ more fully. Peter said, if that's you out there, Lord, bid me come. And Jesus will always say the same thing. Jesus will always say, come. So have you asked God to bid you come and have you heard Him speak to you? He will always say the same thing. Come. Come deeper. Come deeper. Even if it's on the water. Even if it makes no sense. Come. And Paul is telling us in this text tonight, how that is supposed to work. So, let me just give you some, some background, some context here on what Paul has already been saying in, in the book of Colossians and then we'll, we'll get into these few verses. So, first two chapters, Paul has made a defense of the biblical gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then he refutes the false teachers. What are the false teachers saying? The same thing the false teachers are still saying. That you need Jesus plus something. Okay? You need Jesus plus something. Anytime you hear Jesus plus something, you know it's false. You know it's demonic. Paul has been refuting that in the book. We don't need Jesus plus something. We just simply need Jesus. He's been abundantly clear in the first two chapters of Colossians. Christ is all you need. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells. I believe that's chapter 2, verse 9. So, in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul begins to do what he always begins to do. He puts a beautiful God in front of you. In almost every book, this is his pattern. He puts a beautiful God in front of you. Breathtaking theology. And then, then he says what? This is what you're supposed to do with this. <laughs> The Bible's never academic. If you think it's academic, you've missed the point. You're supposed to do the Word, not simply hear the Word. What did James say? Those who hear the Word and simply delude themselves. So Paul has laid out this beautiful, this beautiful radical salvation that Jesus has purchased for us. And then he begins to tell us, here's what you need to do with it. And the way, the way you prosecute this, the way that this becomes real on a daily basis is chapter 3 of Colossians, verses 1 and 2. You keep seeking the things above. Right? You can strip everything else out of your life if you have to. But this is non-negotiable. You keep seeking the things above. You set your mind on the things above. Not on the things of the earth. Strip it all away! If you get more of Christ, you win. Some of you don't believe that yet. You think the world is more interesting. <laughs> you think the world's more interesting than God. You think there's more pleasure in the world than there is in God. I'm an old man. I'm not going to tell you how old I am. Because do maybe hates it when I do that. But I am an old man and I'm telling you, the world is nothing compared to God. The pleasure He offers, simply being in relationship with Him is nothing. Is infinitely more than all the pleasures of the world. So, 
I hope that that's something that you understand. So Paul has defended the simplicity and purity of the biblical gospel. He says we are saved by an awesome God. And then he says, if. If. Then. This is true of you. You will seek the things above. You will do it. The kept do this, right? Joshua Harris wasn't one of the kept. It was never real. You know, I think sometimes men fall in love with theology. I mean, theology is breathtaking. I can't believe I get paid to do this. I get paid to sit and think deeply about God. It's breathtaking. I think some men fall in love with the theology. Some men fall in love with the position. Some men fall in love with the power. Some men fall in love with, you know, uh, being a, maybe a mouthpiece of God. Some men fall in, fall in love with a whole lot of superficial things. And they've never truly known or loved God. Paul says, this is how you do it. This is how you do Christianity. You always seek the things above. Always. Every day. Not one day goes by that you don't seek, that you proactively, mindfully, purposely seek the things above. Because if you let one day go by, you, you know the old saying, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. You never stay the same. It's very true. In... Uh, in a Christian context. So how do we do it? We look at God. We look at God. God puts everything in perspective. We seek the things above. We set our mind on God. We look at God. So how do we look at God? Not on the internet, usually. Not on Facebook. Now, I, had, I do have some really cool guys who post cool stuff on Facebook, okay? And I, I normally get rocked when I go to Facebook because I have all these ministers posting this cool stuff. Not on social media, usually. How do you, you know, look at God in His Word, in His Word? I'm a disciple. I'm in the Word. I'm in the Word. I'm a student of the Word. I'm a Berean. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the Word and I'm trying to figure out if these things are so. I'm looking at God. I must look at God. I like how Paul talks about this, 2 Corinthians 4.18. He says, we don't look at the things that are seen. Some of you are. You're, you're enamored with something you've seen in the world. It's, it's captured your attention. It's captured your imagination. You know, it's really more interesting than God. Do you know that you've just believed a huge lie? <laughs> Anything you think is more interesting than God, you have, you have swallowed Satan's biggest lie. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? She saw that it was good for food and to make one wise, and it was desirable. She desired it more than she desired God. You're always in trouble if that's where you are. We don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. That's what we look at, the things that are not seen. How do you see the things that are not seen? In the Bible. It's the only way to see the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are what? You tell me. Eternal. Right? Eternal. So I'll just stop and ask you, I mean, are you, are, are you interested in eternity or not? 
You know, if you're really not interested, I don't know why you're here. I don't know why you call yourself a Christian. Christians are interested in eternity. Christians think about heaven. Christians think about what it will be like to look upon the face of Jesus. Christians think about what Jesus has talked about when He, when he talks about the promises of reward to those who are obedient, those who are good stewards. Christians think about these things. I'm talking about real Christians. They, talk, they think about these things. This is what occupies their heart and their mind. Our Jesus view dominates our worldview. Amen? Our Jesus view dominates our worldview. We live from God's perspective. How? By the Word. It's the only way we can do it. If you're not in the Word, you'll wander off. Again, you will. You will wander off. I love how Tim, Tim Keller said this. I already shared it with you. Real Christians rush into obedience, motivated, motivated by a desire to please God. Eugene Peterson says, so if you're serious about living the new life with Christ, he says, act like it. Colossians 3.1, that's his paraphrase. So what, what is one of the things we learn from the men and women of Hebrews 11? The great chapter of faith. They were all looking at God. I'll just give you a couple examples. Hebrews 11.10, they were looking for the city of God. Hebrews 11.13, they were strangers and exiles upon the earth. This was their confession. They knew they didn't belong here. They belonged there. Hebrews 11.16, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Their whole life was about where they were going, not about where they are. Again, some of you have built your whole life about where you are. This is complete lunacy. From a biblical perspective, it's not about where we are. It's about where we're going. And it informs. Where we're going informs how we live today. You know? How I do my job. How I treat my spouse. How I raise my kids. How I relate to my neighbor. How I, you know, give a blessing to the one who hates me, as Peter says. How do you do that? How do you not take vengeance? God says, don't take vengeance. That's my job. You give a blessing. How do you do that? You won't ever do that unless you're in the Word of God. You won't ever do that. That's about as alien as it gets, right? To bless the man who attacks you. It's what God has called us to, right? So I mentioned this in passing last week. The, the perfect analogy here for me is the Olympic athlete, right? How does he end up on the gold medal stand? It was just an accident. Right? It was... It just happened. No. His whole life was about that. His whole life was about that for the last 20 years. To end up on the medal stand. You know, the, the analogy Paul talks about. Run the race to win. This guy or this woman has spent most of her life so she could stand there. I looked up the Rio Summer Olympics, whenever that was, 16. You know how much a gold medal is worth? You want to give your whole life for 509 euros? Do you see the lunacy here? That I'm, I'm, I'm giving my life to some worldly pursuit when I could be giving it to God for some eternal pursuit, some eternal reward? 
Yeah, they end up on the metal, metal stand because it's been their whole life. I think this is a great analogy for Christianity. One would think that blood-bought, born-again Christians would be seeking the things above at least as earnestly as a man or woman seeks a 509 euro value medal. I don't know. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. And you guys know how Hebrews 11 ends. You roll into Hebrews 12 and God says, that's what I want your life to look like. You roll into Hebrews 12 and He's looking back at Hebrews 11 He says, that's what I want you to do. I want you to live like that. I want you to live like that. I want you to incarnate Colossians 3, 1 and 2. I want you to keep seeking the things above and I want you to set your mind on the things above not on the things that are on the earth. I hope some of you are never the same because you were here tonight. You're never going to be the same because you can't give yourself to such small things anymore. You can't live this small, right? You can't live this small to simply pursue and love the things of the earth. Back to the Olympic runner. How would you describe him? You have to use words like focus, discipline, tireless, driven, motivated, hardworking, determined, single-minded, resolute, unwavering. Is that your Christianity? You know, I meet so many, it's just kind of, my Christianity is just kind of a passive thing. It's a side issue. If I have time, I deal with it. Yeah, I like to check the box. I like to tip my hat to God. This is not what God's talking about in the Bible. This is not what He's talking about. Follow me, he says. And he means it. He means it, beloved. He means it. So, you guys know Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Listen to what he says. God says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. So here it is. God says, you've got to lay aside a bunch of junk. You've got you to offload the junk. And you've got to lay aside your sin. Whatever sin it is you love more than God, you've got to throw it down. You've just got to put it down or you can't go on. You can't go on with God. This is what he says. Lay it down, the sin that so easily entangles us, and run with endurance the race set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So this race analogy is perfect. It is perfect. The Holy Spirit says, you've got to keep seeking the things above. Strip down and run, Eugene Peterson says. <laughs> I think that's his uh, message paraphrase of, of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. You've got to strip down and run and have your mind set on the exhilarating finish in and with God. That's another part of his paraphrase there. Philippians 3.20, God tells us that our citizenship is where? It's not here. This is present tense. If you're a Christian, your citizenship is already heaven. It's heaven. You're supposed to be living like you belong there. You're supposed to be living like you can't wait to get there. You know, at my age, I have friends that die. And um, 
I mean, that happens at all ages, but particularly the older I get, the more friends, you know, peel off. Family members and stuff. And the ones that are believers, it's like, yay. You know, you know what I mean? Yay. <laughs> to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's an awesome thing. Death, death holds no sting for us. One theologian said, our heavenly citizenship should be on display in our daily lives. Let me just ask you, is that true of you? Can your friends at the university, do they, do they know that you belong to God because of the way you, you live? Your, your, your co-workers, do they know you belong to God? Yes, you should be speaking it, but can they tell it? Can they tell it even if you don't say anything? Can they see it? Can they feel it? Can they smell it? Paul says, with the aroma of Christ in the world. Can they smell God on you? One of my seminary professors used to say that all the time. I loved it. Can they smell God on you? They will if you're seeking, if you keep seeking the things above and you're setting your mind on the things of Christ. So, it made me think this transition Paul's making to application from theology to application, you realize this is what he does frequently. He did this in the first 11 chapters of Romans. He's, he's got all this breathtaking theology and then he turns the corners. Anybody remember Romans 12, 1 and 2? You remember what Paul says? Therefore, brethren, do it. He says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Therefore, incarnate this beautiful theology. It's the call of God. It's the call of the Bible. He's always calling us to live it out. So what is the reasonable response to the radical love and radical grace of God? It's to pick up our cross and follow Him. Anything less is lukewarm Christianity. Okay? And we know how God feels about that. We know how he feels about that. Paul says, give yourselves away to Christ. Present yourselves a living sacrifice to God. And I got to quote, I know I've quoted him three times already, but I got to quote Eugene Peterson again here on that, on that chapter 12, 1 and 2. Listen to what he says. He says, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and give it to God as an offering. I love that. Romans 12, 1, the Message Bible. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Let's finish up here, verses 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, The world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. The, the true believer understands this. It's not that we incarnate this perfectly, but we understand we're moving in that direction. There are still things in my life that must be crucified, and I'm working on that, right? I'm in the sanctification fight. Galatians uh, 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The Holy Spirit says our life is hidden in Christ. Verse 3 of Colossians 3, verse 4, he says, Christ is our life. I love 
famous preacher in the States, John MacArthur, I love what he says about this text. He says, what this means is my life is all tangled up with God. <laughs> Don't you love that? My life is all tangled up with God. Every sphere of my life, it's all tangled up with God. God matters in every area of my life. The Holy Spirit says Christ is our life. Verse 4 here. Christ is our life. I think he's saying two things. One, we are eternally secure. and We've been talking a whole lot about this. If we are saved, we're saved forever. We can never be separated from God. That's, that's heretical. That's apostasy. That's ignorance. That's not biblical to say you can lose your salvation. Why do people walk away? They were never saved. Why does Joshua Harris leave the mega pastorate? Because he was never God's. For whatever reason, he found it expedient to be this man for most of his life, but he got to the place where he really didn't fear God anymore. This is what it always comes down to. What is the beginning of wisdom? Tell me. What is the beginning of wisdom? Once you lose the fear of God, you will wander off. Trust me. I've seen this many times. If you no longer fear God, if you dismiss God, if you discount the God of the Bible because you don't like something He says... You'll find a reason to wander off and you will wander off. It will happen. Mark it down. If you don't practice the presence of God in your life, if you don't practice the fear of God in your life, ultimately, you'll wander off. You'll just do it, beloved. This is documented both scripturally and throughout the history of the church. The second thing I think being hidden with Christ means is that we are aliens. We are peculiar people, right? We are peculiar people. The world, they know we're weird, but they don't really have any idea how weird we really are, right? We are out there, man. The world doesn't get us at all. Yay! You know, I get this from people all the time. Well, my family thinks I'm weird. I say, yay! You are weird! You're supposed to be weird. Every aspect of your life shouldn't make any sense, as Francis Chan says. Something's wrong if your life makes sense to an unbeliever. So I get a good question on occasion, I'm done. I get a good question on occasion. You know, you go to some churches and they have a... I don't know what it's like in your home country. In my tradition, where I grew up, they will always have this long invitation. Do you know what you know? What invitation at the end of the service for people to come down and make some kind of profession of faith or repent of some sin or something? And sometimes I get the question, why do you not do this, Jim? And I say, well, one reason is the Bible is the invitation. The Word of God is the invitation. God has invited you to go deep with Him. I, I don't need to drive the point home. I don't need to manipulate you emotionally or psychologically to get you to you know, capitulate to God. If you don't want God, then, you know, forget about it. If you do want God, you don't have to come up here and make it evident to me. There's nothing, okay, I'm saying, there's nothing inherently wrong with an invitation unless it's manipulation. Then it's evil. It's wrong. It's wrong. So, I leave, I leave all the important stuff to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit you know, is doing all the important work with you right now, right? He's doing all the important work with you right now. That's His job. And again, to manip manipulate someone emotionally, I think it's, it's abhorrent. It's appalling to do this.
But I will close with an imitation tonight. <laughs> not a fleshly or emotional manipulative appeal. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. But just a biblical invitation to come and to do Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Let me just close this way. I'm going to quote Luke 9, 23 and 24. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus makes it real clear. You don't have to wonder what He means. You don't have... There's no confusion about what He means. Jesus says, if you want Me, come on. He says... If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And then I'll close with 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. I've already shared it with you. If you don't know this by now, or if you didn't know this when you came in, hopefully you do know it by now. But I think it's the right way to close. Do you not know that you are not your own? Do you not know this? You don't belong to yourself anymore. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, what, how does it finish? Therefore what? Glorify God. So, now you're accountable. You've heard Colossians 3, 1 through 4, exposited. Yeah, not the best preacher in the world, but hopefully I made the points, right? You're accountable to God. You know what God expects. To seek the things above, to seek Christ above all else. You know what God expects. Aren't you thankful for His Word? We don't have to guess what He expects. We know exactly what He expects. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this beautiful text. We thank You for its clarity. Again, we never have to really guess about what You mean. We know exactly what You mean. The issue is always, will I bow my knee or not? So Lord, I pray that each one of us in this room have decided to bow the knee. Have decided that Jesus is infinitely valuable. infinitely valuable. And yes, you can ask anything of us and we will happily surrender it to you. It's yours already. We are yours. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the energy that's running my brain right now, it's derivative. It's all yours. It's from you. So Lord, we... We take a lesson from this pastor in the States who has fallen away. And we pray that that will not happen to any of us. And we understand the formula. The formula is seek the things above where Christ is seated. Seek the things above and not the things of the earth. We have the formula. We know how to succeed in this. So Lord, we thank You for this. We thank You that You have given us what we need. You always give us what we need and we thank You for this, Father. 
have Your way in our lives, we pray. I pray that each one of us in this room will walk out that door and magnify You this week like we never have before. Life is short. Eternity is long. Lord, I pray we would gain some perspective here. We love You and we praise You in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and I will share our benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Let me say this. You say, well, Jim, you got pretty excited tonight. I know I always get excited. But um, that's how God...